Hi everyone, my name is Eleanor. I'm an editor for Unsweetened and I'm here with fellow editor uh, Bell. And we're here to do an interview with Professor Sean Pryor. Sean, it's good to have you here. Uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem, no problem. Uh, did you want to just start off with um, an introduction of yourself? Let everyone know who you are. Sure. Um, I'm Sean. I teach English at UNSW. Uh, I teach mainly our poetry course. I've also found myself in recent years teaching our Shakespeare course, despite the fact that I'm very much not a Shakespearean. For the most part, I, uh, I, I work on poetry and I tend to work on uh, 19th and 20th century poetry, um, especially modernist poetry. Very occasionally, I will dabble and write about a novel, but for the most part, just just poems. So that's me. I don't know. I would say I took your Shakespeare class <laughs> last term. I think you're a bit of a Shakespearean. Oh, thanks. That's very good. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I guess we'll get started. Uh, has there been something you read recently that enriched the way that you look at the world? Yeah, it's a good question. I was thinking about this this morning. I've been I've been working recently on uh, an, an essay on modernism's encounter with the hymn, which sounds like a deathly dull topic. Mm -hmm. or, uh, uh, <laughs> um, but it actually turns out to be quite interesting. And I've found lots of weird, often very bad, but fascinating, um, obscure hymns published towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. The First World War, for instance, produced a, a flood of new hymns, many of them very patriotic, uh, mm. extolling the sacrifice of soldiers and so on and so forth. They're not great poetry for the most part, but they're really <laughs> And it's interesting to see the function that poetry had in uh, society at that time, if that makes sense. And across the empire, there was one poem that I found. It was first published in The Times, for instance, uh, in its sort of exhorts the men of empire, literally refers to the men of empire to go and, and, and fight for the empire. But then it was published in New Zealand. It was published in uh, United States. So it was published across the globe. It kind of had a global circulation. So it's interesting to see poetry's kind of social functions in that way. Though, as I say, these are, these are not great poems. Um, what else have I been reading? I've been reading, there's a, a new book of poems by Evelyn Araluen. I'm not sure if you have heard of Evelyn Araluen. She's a, a really wonderful um, contemporary Indigenous Australian poet. She has a new book out called Drop Bear, which I highly recommend. It's excellent. Oh, um, I, okay, that I actually know um, her brother. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, that's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, I just realised who you were talking about. No, yeah, I know um, her brother. It's my partner's uh, brother-in-law, so <laughs> quite <laughs> um, far Six apart. Six separation. <laughs> it's a small world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you should you should you should uh, order a copy of Drop Bear. It's it's really amazing. Awesome. So, yeah, as you mentioned, your your work does focus primarily on 19th to 20th century poetics and particularly modernism. And uh, for, you know, anybody who has studied literature or history in general, they would know that this is one of the most richest and diverse periods in literary culture. So what, you know, specifically drew you to this era or style? And, you know, does it still capture your imagination in the same way or has your perspective changed since then? It's a good question. 
It's generous of you to describe modernism as a rich period. <laughs> um, sometimes I worry that, or, you know, sometimes I feel that perhaps modernism's star is fading. I first came to modernism uh, as a high school student, really. Uh, I studied Yeats, William Butler Yeats, uh, for the HSC. Before that, I had really been um, most in love with Shakespeare and, and, and actually medieval poetry. I used to read a lot of medieval poetry. I, uh, I fell in love with Yeats. I convinced my three-unit um, HSC English class that we should choose Yeats as our special author. And I think by the end of the year, everyone else in the class quite resented me because they did not like him as much as I did. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, I studied Yeats for the HSC. Um, and then when I got to university and I was uh, doing my degree and majoring in English, I read a, a whole range of, of, of other modernist poets. I remember in, a, in an honours course that I was taking, it was a course on transatlantic literature, so literature that um, by Americans who were living and working in, in uh, Britain or on the continent, uh, but also uh, work by British or European writers about America. Um, there was the option to do your tutorial presentation on Ezra Pound. And I had heard of this, um, this figure, Ezra Pound. I'd never read any Ezra Pound. And all I knew about Ezra Pound was that it was really hard, that it was really difficult. That was that was the impression I had from um, what I had heard about Pound. And I thought, well, if I don't, if I don't tackle what is difficult in an honours seminar, I'll never do it. So I will try. And, um, and that got me onto Pound. I ended up writing my PhD thesis on Yates and Pound. Um, so there were a couple of reasons, I suppose, why I, uh, I became attracted to modernism. With Yates, um, uh, I just kind of, I, I, I fell in love with the, well, retrospectively, what I would say, as a retrospective explanation, I have a better, better way of describing now what I was feeling then. But I think it was just the form of it. His forms are just so so rich and so impeccably well-crafted. At the time, I think I probably just felt that it was very powerful and interesting. Today, I would say that the reason I found it powerful is that, you know, even something as seemingly technical as his rhythm is just so very accomplished and there was the difficulty of it I actually really liked the challenge of it uh, and and the anecdote about pound is an example of that I quite like puzzles and I like for better or for worse treating poetry as a puzzle I I can well understand that for some that will feel very unsympathetic or unattractive that poetry sh should not be a puzzle it should be moving or emotionally uh uh, stimulating for me it can be those things and be a puzzle the two don't get in the way but I understand that it doesn't work that way for everybody uh, whether or not my ideas about modernism have changed I mean as you become a researcher your your motivation for reading things changes so that, I mean the essay that I was describing earlier is a good example uh, I was reading these hymns not so as to be moved or even so as to find great poetry, but I was reading them because they're of historical interest. And they, I suppose you could say they provide a context for my reading of poems, which I do think are, are successful. But I actually quite enjoy uh, the archival work, seeing 
or all, all, all the other sorts of poetry that that circulate at a particular time and that that often were very popular and powerful to people at at a time in the past. Um, so my motivations for reading have changed, but that's not to say there aren't still poems that I am just floored by. Yeah, I, th I think that's um, a really interesting point in terms of looking at the way that poetry impacts uh, certain people in a certain time. And I think modernism is a really interesting period, as you were saying, for investigating how uh, people respond to poetry. And I think how people respond to poetry has, has, has changed uh, dramatically, but at the same time, some things, you know, stay the same. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a really good problem. It's actually a problem that is of some moment in contemporary criticism on modernism because this is a caricature, obviously, but modernist poetry, much modernist poetry that is now canonical or now often read, was not very popular at the time. And there was a lot of other poetry which was very popular. And so the 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 institutionalization of modernism the fact that we we or at least have that the institutional teaching and criticism of literature say from the end of the 19th century through to the second world war or whenever you want to to bracket modernism has focused on uh those whom we label modernists is something of a misrepresentation of the the general literary production of the time uh, and so there are, you know, quite a number of, of, of really um, strong arguments that have been made recently that if we want a proper understanding of how literature worked, say, at the beginning of the 20th century, you've got to look at all that other stuff as well. It, it, it might be that it does not meet our aesthetic, aesthetic criteria, uh, but it was powerful to people at the time and that has a kind of historical value it's worth worth investigating and you might even take it a step further and and mm, working through that phenomenon question one's own aesthetic criteria it may well be that that other stuff actually is valuable and successful in all sorts of ways that we have trained ourselves to miss like we've trained ourselves out of being able to appreciate those other kinds of poetry or fiction or whatever it might be all of those i think are, are good and interesting problems and some of the poets that I love most from the early 20th century are not, you know, the most experimental or the most avant-garde. Modernism comes with this kind of, it comes with the value of the extreme in some fashion. Like the more fragmented it is, the better, or the more obscure references to dead languages, the better, or <laughs> the more the sentence is broken down, the better, the less intelligible it is, the better, the more avant-garde, mm. more experimental, and so on and so forth. Mm. That's not the only way to be better. It's not the only way to be good. Uh, it is important to remember. So, Sean, uh, many of the myths, legends and folktales we have been discussing on this podcast were conceived thousands of years ago. Uh, Do you think it's important to revisit and reflect on older stories or should we focus more on the future? Yeah, that's a very good question. So the simple answer is that the, the, uh, yeah, there are two levels to my answer, I guess I would say. The simple answer is yes, it is essential, I think, to read not just myths and legends and folktales from the past, but to read works from the past, to read the, the mm -hmm. literature of the past, to engage with the cultural production of the past beyond literature. And it can seem as though to do that is to escape from the past, escape from the present into the past 
or to ignore the future at the expense of the past, which which might be the implication of the, the opposition in the question, right? Should we turn to the past or should we look towards the future? Really, mm-hmm. what we'd want to say is that the two are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, one requires the other. If you want to look towards the future or understand the present properly, you need to look at the past. So uh, Belle was saying before that she's taking uh, a course about the Gothic. And if you want to understand how Twilight functions or <laughs> if you're of my generation, if you want to understand how Buffy works, really, <laughs> really at some point you need to read Horace Walpole right? and and Radcliffe. Uh, you need That's to fantastic, yeah. <laughs> where, the, where the Gothic comes from. It's actually something that I feel quite quite strongly about. What I try to do in my poetry course very often is to pair some fairly recent work with some much older work so as to, to, to encourage students to read back and forth between the past and the present. Uh, in the Shakespeare course, it's a bit more difficult, obviously, because Shakespeare is just 400 years old. But, but on the other hand, there are plenty of ways in which to... Um, engage with Shakespeare's contemporary reception or his performance history, uh, to think about how Shakespeare is is used in the contemporary world, his relevance, the the, the uses and abuses of Shakespeare uh, today for this or that purpose. So um, working back and forth between the two um, is quite, quite productive. Uh, yeah, I was actually looking back at some of the essays that I wrote for your poetics course and I remembered that I wrote an essay a comparative essay on Kendrick Lamar and Sappho oh that's great (laughs) um and looking back on that I was like wow yeah that's um that's probably one of the most ambitious but satisfying things I've ever done (laughs) that's great yeah I I think that's really really wonderful and and valuable I I have it I mean uh, I I have a, a concern I suppose that Institutional systems and, and the, the rhetoric of contemporary institutions tend overwhelmingly today to be presentist, to, to mm-hmm. emphasise the present and the future, and often at the expense of the past. Um, uh, and, and I'm too committed to Sappho for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, much recent commentary on poetry has centered around its recent resurgence in the popular imagination and consumption, which is uh, mainly attributed to social media. Um, But what what do you think the most exciting thing happening in poetry is at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it is true that there is an awful lot of uh, energy in contemporary poetry. uh, And a lot of that energy centers on... um, forms of poetry produced and disseminated via social media, so Instagram poetry, but also as my students um, inform me um, on Pinterest and uh, no doubt there's TikTok poetry, though I've not encountered it yet. I'm sure it's there. (laughs) I would love to see that. (laughs) uh, Performance poetry and slam poetry and and obviously in the last couple of years, performance poetry uh, has migrated uh, online uh in in really interesting and productive ways so there's a lot of energy around those those developments uh and and i can see why they are very exciting one of the things that makes them exciting i think is that they are popular 
uh, some Instagram poets have, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers, which is extraordinary. Um, and it is interesting to think about why uh, they have been able to generate such followings. Uh, it's similarly interesting to think about what the audiences of performance poetry value, what it is that that the people who uh, produce performance poetry, the poets themselves and the audiences of uh, performance poetry get out of it that appeals to them in ways that other sorts of poetry might not. And that kind of returns us to the, the problem that I was talking about with modernism, that many of the canonical modernist poets were not in their day hugely popular, because there is also plenty of much less popular contemporary poetry, uh, some of which is very experimental or avant-garde, some of which we will read in a poetry course at UNSW, and some students will say, that is not poetry, that is that's too much, or that is too far, or that's rubbish, or whatever it might be. So I, the, 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 the ultimate answer to the question for me is that I think what's most exciting is that there are all these different kinds. Mm. And trying to think about the, the landscape, if you like, or to switch figures, the ecology of contemporary poetry is really interesting. How is it that both... A, an Instagram poet with 4 million followers or, you know, Amanda Gorman performing her poem at Biden's inauguration. Mm. It's part of, at some level, it may be a quite abstract level, but nevertheless, at some level, the same art form as, you know, a highly avant-garde contemporary poet who's publishing in chapbooks, of which perhaps there are 50 or 100 copies printed, you know, and it's for a small audience, uh, often of fellow avant-garde poets and academics. What is common to these things? What is different about them? What sort of functions do they serve? Uh, what sort of aesthetic criteria do they meet? All of those are good questions. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think the most exciting thing is not one or or another development, particular development, but the fact that the, the landscape is so diverse. That's a really good point. I think it's probably the defining characteristic that I observe in poetry at the moment is its diversity because we have so uh, such a rich uh, history and tradition to pull from. So I think that's what um, makes it really interesting uh, to work on. Like I kind of grew up uh, reading and writing poetry on various blogs and tumblers and all that kinds of stuff and it's kind of transformed itself into Instagram poetry in a way and uh, but at the same time you know you have really interesting yeah chapbooks chapbooks and zines published all the time so it's on the one hand I think it can feel a little overwhelming uh, the amount of content that there seems to be yeah. so I feel like contemporary poets these days almost have it harder um in a way because they're not only fighting against the tide but they're aware of the amount of content out there yeah i think that's absolutely right in fact it's um it's basically impossible to keep on top of anything close to everything you know to to, to sort of even to be familiar with all of the scenes or movements or groups or however you want to bracket contemporary poetry production and on the one hand that might produce a kind of anxiety 
But on the other hand, it can be liberating because it it uh, it means that you do no longer need to have um, a sort of omniscient overview of things. And th there's actually a really good lesson in that for thinking about the poetry of the past as well. Uh, when you you know are reading an anthology of 17th century poetry or even 19th century poetry, the anthology looks as though it is giving you an omniscient overview of things, right? This is all the stuff that was produced or this is all the stuff that was produced that matters, that was good. And that's false. Right? And the Norton Anthology is not a representative selection of poetry produced from Old English to now by any stretch. I mean, recent editions are better than older editions, but, but anthologies and canons select and simplify uh, and a lot of the most uh, sort of exciting Contemporary criticism has been an effort to recover everything that is left out from those processes of selection and to show that the, the landscape or the ecology of the production of poetry in the past is, is actually also or was also really very diverse and rich, much as it is today. So, yeah, that returns us to our point about the past and the present continually informing each other. Thanks, Sean. That's so interesting. Um, so just for the last question for today. Uh, what is your favorite myth, legend, or folktale, and why? Thanks, Alvin. When I when I got this, I've been thinking about this question has been the one keeping me up at night. Uh, <laughs> I, when I got this question, I could not think of an answer, and um, all I could do was think about why I could not think of an answer. I don't have a favorite myth or folktale or legend, and there are, I think, a couple of reasons for that. It's got something to do with the place of myth or folktale or legend in the sort of life that I have had, which is a middle class, white Australian, contemporary, secular life. Uh, and so there are not, for instance, myths or legends that were uh, especially important to my family group, you know, my community. Uh, myth and legend did not have an especially prominent role in that kind of life, except, I suppose you could say, in the debased forms of, you know, a pretty secular Christmas, <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing. So when I think about myths, I think I, I confess, and it does feel like a bit of a confession, I think about them as a, as a scholar thinks of them. I think of them as a critic thinks of them. I think of them as resources which literature makes use of to put it that way is to imply a distinction between myth and literature which could certainly be questioned and i i recognize that but when i think about the the myths or the legends that well the first myths and legends i suppose that that come to mind are those that have been most sort of fruitful i guess you could say across the literature that i know well which is by no means everything and so it would be examples like the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, or Ovid's Metamorphoses. So uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses is hugely influential on Shakespeare, for instance, and on you know countless poets, novelists, playwrights, at least writing in English across the centuries. Not to mention many other arts, painting, music, and so on and so forth. So they're just hugely, hugely productive. But of course, Ovid's poem itself is not. It's not really myth. It's a it's a, a work of art that draws on myths, brings them together, shapes them and arranges them in, in very artful ways. So it's a kind of step removed from art, from myth itself. 
But as I say, that is a very scholarly sort of answer. That is to say, well, you know, the myth that I like best are the ones that have produced the, the most and the best poems rather than uh, happen to have the most powerful stories or happen to have the stories, for instance, which have most informed my kind of communal life because that is not the sort of life I have had, I suppose. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I actually think it's a really cruel question that we ask all of our interview guests um, because I also really struggle. I always think about it whenever I do one of these uh, interviews or listen to them is I'm like, what is my favorite myth? And I also don't have one because I think, uh, you know, as you said, like the tradition of kind of grasping on to other cultures mythology, I think, is something right. that has been interesting to look at and the recourse that um, white middle class uh, Australians have to something like Greek mythology or Roman mythology um, and the way that that's been reinterpreted through classicism and neoclassicism and romanticism. So uh, the way that myths get uh, reborn into new contexts. So I think it's, yeah, it's uh, an interesting way to look at how I think the most interesting part is the symbolism of mythology that gets regurgitated in literature and works of art Um, and to trace those and say, oh, you know, that author, that artist was referring to that. Why were they referring to that? That's interesting that that was part of their milieu, I guess. Yeah, there's there's a potential distinction to be made between myth with its symbols as you put it, and what you might call that sort of the bare bones of the story, a plot and some characters, which remain stable across multiple incarnations and adaptations. You know, to to take a a classical example, something like the the story of Odysseus is a a story that we 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 receive or comes to us in the Odyssey, but is also referred to in other works of Greek literature, not to mention um, mosaics and paintings and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and then subsequently through the, the millennia is retold and adapted in all sorts of ways. And at some level, the myth remains the same. Right? The myth doesn't change. The myth is stable. Uh, as soon as I say that, there's a part of my brain that says thinks of exceptions and qualifications, but let's let's take that as a, as academic brain. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 um, take it as a simplification that we'll accept for the moment that the myth remains reasonably stable, whereas each particular instance, say Joyce's Ulysses, is trying to make a singular artwork out of that myth, and uh, my training is is overwhelmingly to be interested in the singular artwork rather than the stable myth. Um, I have been trained to value that sort of thing. So I'm interested in the differences between the way Pound uses the Odyssey and the way Joyce uses the Odyssey and so on and so forth, Um, or the story of uh, uh, Odysseus. Uh, I'm not sure if that helps. But it's it's another explanation for why the myth itself, I suppose, is not the most important thing to me. Uh, It's the particularity of each adaptation or reinvention that, that I tend to value I suppose but that's because I've been trained that way. Well I think it's an interesting way to look at um, mythology. I'm Greek and Italian so I can't really escape it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like embedded in the culture. Yeah. 
But yeah, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today about poetry and modernism and myths. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me.